0: Welcome to this episode of Fridays with Fintilect, where my guest is Don Spicer, Executive Director of the Caribbean Financial Action Task Force, or the CFATF, which is an FATF-style regional body with responsibility for 25 countries in the Caribbean region. Don is a National of Trinidad and Tobago and an attorney at law by profession with more than 28 years of experience in the area of AML-CFT. In her previous positions with the CFATF, she has provided AML CFT-related technical assistance to local, regional, and international organizations, and has participated both as an assessor and head of mission for the mutual evaluations of various CFATF member countries. Don, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mr. Pathak.
0: So, Don, to start with, I thought maybe we could speak a bit about the CFATF. Now, the CFATF is an organization of 25 member states, uh, many of which are small nations. Are there any specific AML safety compliance challenges that result because of this? And in the same breath, at the same time, are there any advantages? You know, we know for one that regulatory responses in smaller jurisdictions can be much more agile and supportive of innovation and entrepreneurship. So your views on both the challenges and advantages will be very useful to our listeners, uh, especially those based in smaller jurisdictions.
1: Thank you very much for the question. Yes, indeed, we have 25 member countries covering the Caribbean region, South America and Central America. And most of them are very small jurisdictions with one as little as 5,000 persons total. So the challenges really pertain to the availability of both human and economic resources. Human resources, of course, then directly impacts the need to have national risk assessments. So as you know, the fourth round of mutual evaluations, which is the most current round of mutual evaluations for the FATF and FATF style regional bodies involves um, a risk-based approach And recommendation one, while not stipulating that national risk assessments are essential, really tells countries that they need to identify, assess, understand their risk and mitigate their risk. As such, one of the best ways to do that is through a national risk assessment. And the lack of resources really goes into the ability to properly conduct those national risk assessments, to do them in a timely manner because it's really resource intensive. That um, challenge has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, where you have elements of um, lockdowns, um, quarantines, social distancing. So part of the process, of course, is getting into groups, collaborating, exchange of information between your private and public sectors, your law enforcement, et cetera. And of course, the very nature of that COVID-19 makes it difficult. So it has ad- certainly added to the challenges that are there. There's also the element of um, loss of correspondent banking or the risking. So that is an ongoing feature with um, countries of um, the size of the um, Caribbean Financial Action Task Force members trying to juggle how best to show that they are mitigating their risks, they understand their risks so that they don't lose their correspondent banking facilities. So that of course is another major challenge that I see. Um, The good or positive part of being small is that everyone knows everyone. So to a certain degree, it is possible now to get legislation more easily passed or relatively soon. So you're able to adapt more quickly in terms of legislative changes maybe not in terms of implementation because if you look at the mutual evaluation reports for the 10 countries that have been assessed so far you see that definitely in terms of effective implementation which is the second prong aspect of this round of mutual evaluations there needs to be a significant amount of improvement in the work that is done being done by countries however in terms of technical compliance being small um, being able to get that legislation through um, the parliamentary framework, that of course is something that is a bit easier done. Also as small jurisdictions, I think we have an advantage in terms of receiving donor training and technical support, technical assistance. So you have the IMF, the World Bank, and you have um, other larger countries who assist, knowing that there is an element of lack of human resources, lack of technical expertise, so you're able to take advantage of that. The CFATF helps in terms of having a donors forum at its May plenary usually. And that brings the donors in to basically say, this is what we have to offer in terms of countering money laundering, terrorist financing and proliferation financing. We also have members on an annual basis submit technical assistance and training matrices where they say, this is where we need technical assistance or training. And so we try to marry that going through the year with what donors have to offer.
0: Right. Now, so, um, don't, you know, there is often a perception uh, of weak AML cft controls attached to international financial centers and there has lately been global attention on improving financial regulation and supervision in traditional offshore financial centers. Are there any specific measures that countries in the Caribbean have taken to improve their positioning on AML safety regulation and supervision? And how has the CFATF supported these nations?
1: Um, Thank you, Sharish, for that question. Um, I think, yes, it is unfortunate that there is this perception with regard to IFCs. Um, I, a lot of the IFCs and definitely within the region have very sound AML, CFT, CPF frameworks. They're very engaged and their legislation is solid. Again, we have issues in terms of levels of effective implementation based on resources and now, of course, as I indicated perfectly um, previously, that has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 situation in terms of making it difficult to do certain activities the way one would have normally. Of course, there are now workarounds to that. I would say in terms of addressing it, in addition to um, governments having the political will to implement strong AML, CFT, CPF frameworks, you also have a good engagement by the central banks of the region in terms of providing guidance, um, literally physical guidance to their regulated sectors Um, the security sectors, insurance sectors, et cetera, so that there is a good appreciation of what should be done and how things should be handled. There's also a higher level of collaboration between your public and private sector entities, which is something that needs to be ongoing. The supervisor or or regulators need to engage hand-in-hand with the private sector, the financial institutions, as defined by the FATF. This is important because again, as I indicated with the previous question, there is a risk-based approach. And so there needs to be an understanding and a filtering down and a commonality between the public and private sectors as to what the risks are, how they are addressed, so that when the supervisor or regulator goes in, they understand what it is needs to be seen. And the private sector also understands this is what is risk, this is what is high, medium and low risk. I think in some instances there's a disconnect with that, but it's certainly getting better. And you have um, the Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands, where they have an active um, private sector consultative forum process that is ongoing. So that is also important. From the CFATF perspective, we are pleased to say that since 2019, June of 2019, we've had a specific um, advisor, a supervision advisor that has been given advice to CFETF members with regard to their supervisory regime. So either looking at it post-mutual evaluation, those countries that have evaluate, been, had their assessments already, or pre-mutual evaluation, and giving them feedback and advice on how well their supervisory regimes um, are working, what can be tweaked based on the deficiencies found where they've had an evaluation and where they've not had an evaluation, basically looking at it in the context of the FETF standards and giving recommendations as to how it can be improved. So that has proved quite valuable to members in terms of having this dedicated person to address supervision um, and supervisory um, regulatory frameworks within the region, of course, covering immediate outcome three, which deals with supervision, and then all the Reco- FETF recommendations that address that, your recommendations dealing with um, supervision of financial institutions, supervision of DNFEPs, penalties, international cooperation, beyond MLATs, so it's very broad and wide-ranging, and we're pleased to say that we can assist countries in that regard.
0: Right. So, uh, Don, some uh, jurisdictions within the Caribbean, such as, uh, you know, Bermuda, for example, are being regarded as early movers uh, on digital currencies. Now, where do the other country regulators uh, stand with respect to cryptocurrency regulations uh, within the Caribbean, and in terms of, you know, trying to create an ecosystem for developing this whole crypto area?
1: It is something definitely that is happening and has been happening for a few years, as you noticed. Um, as you noted, Bermuda is at basically maybe the forefront of this. They've had their legislation basically passed quite a few years ago and going through the steps of implementation. Everyone, to some degree, within the CFATF region, recognizes cryptocurrencies allows for bitcoins. The development of the Legislative framework to support that is something that's developing, you have the ECCB and the OECS countries and they have a pilot project going on now that is still being executed. You have the Bahamas, who recently, I believe in February of this year, they issued what is called their sand dollar and it's the first um, electronic or digital debit um, card money. So that's important. Barbados also has um, digital currency. So where frameworks are developing and evolving and especially again, um, another fallout good or bad of COVID-19 is the need to have these mechanisms, these digitized mechanisms since face-to-face and coming into banks and it is becoming um, more challenging. So yes, it is an area that um, many of our countries are going into They're following, of course, the REC 15, which requires new technologies, paying attention to the money laundering and terrorist financing risk that come with um, putting new technologies in place. The FATF, of course, has also had its say in terms of guidance in this area on cryptocurrencies. So all that is being taken into consideration, but it's certainly an area that the region is getting involved in, recognizing that it is something in terms of the way the world is going and that they need to be an cutting edge to remain competitive.
0: Right, so uh, Don, you mentioned COVID-19. So, you know, what is the impact you're seeing in the region as a result of the pandemic? Are there any region specific risks that have emerged?
1: Thank you, Sharish, for that question. Um, Certainly there have been, there are no new crimes, but certainly there are ways in which um, criminals are finding um, methods to take advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic situation, and that's mainly through fraud. So you have a lot of fraud in terms of um, fraudulently fleecing people of their money, saying that you know they, they have items for sale that are not. So the PVP, PPE equipment, that has been um, one of the fraud scams. You have the emergence of the pyramid schemes or lottery scams, People have been um, devastated financially in terms of loss of jobs with the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, these get-rich-quick get schemes have become very popular, um, which is unfortunate because people end up losing more money. So despite law enforcement saying this is illegal, this shouldn't be done, people still get involved because it's a high rate of return. And um, so we've seen the emergence of that. There's been an increase, of course, in drug trafficking, specifically cannabis. So that continues because that's um, quick money. So um, crimes that generate a lot of money that uh, really involve fraud, romance, scams. We are persons, now it's virtual, so people never meet. And they romance people over the internet and get them to send them money and gifts and all the rest of it. And of course, it's just a scam. So these are the types of things that we've seen an increase of specifically in the region and that has been highlighted by two papers done by the um, CFATF heads of FIU forum on that, and it's been made available to our members, so they look out in terms of what they're seeing. You also have um, suspicious transaction reports, and in terms of finding new ways now to submit these reports to FIUs, where countries would have had electronic systems in place, that's fine. But where um, SDRs may still have been done by hand delivery or mail delivery, of course, that's been hampered by COVID-19. So it's forced everyone to you know, have a workaround. It's also forced people to have what you call um, business contingency plans, for things like what has in fact happened in terms of working virtually and understanding how to keep AML, CFT systems strong while um, allowing commerce and other things to grow in as best as possible. So that's what we have seen thus far in the region, A lot, uh, and certainly an increase in fraud and various types of fraud as I've indicated.
0: Right. So, uh, Don, how has the CFATF worked towards strengthening the aml safety regime in the region? Are there any uh, achievements or highlights you'd like to share? And also, you know, how is the CFATF uh, helping members to move from technical to effective compliance? I think you know everybody is speaking about technical to effective compliance now in the ML world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just important because you know a few of your members have been included in the FATF grey list.
1: Yes. So as I, thank you, Sharish, as I said earlier on, yes, the technical compliance is basically um, good, I would say, on on average. There are a few countries that still need a lot, some work, quite a bit of work, and that's where you may have problems in terms of um, ongoing unrest in the jurisdiction. And so there is a difficulty in terms of bringing things to parliament because basically parliaments keep changing, et cetera. So there are few jurisdictions like that. But essentially it has been good in terms of technical compliance. Implementing and effectively implementing now is a challenge because again, that's tied to some of the challenges we discussed earlier on in your first question, which is the ability to do a risk assessment, a proper risk assessment, understand what those risks are, understand what mechanisms need to be put in place to, me- to mitigate those risks and then filter that down, not just through law enforcement, but to your financial institutions and your DNFVPs. So that indeed has been a challenge. What we've done in terms of that is ongoing training for members. Before we have an assessment, we have pre-assessment training for members to essentially let them know what the process is about, what they can expect We take opportunities for training and various conferences from donor entities, IMF World Bank, where they have training on how to do national risk assessments. We also um, have our own internal training or um, information that we provide to members based on our attendance at FATF meetings, pointing out what are the relevant factors, what they need to look at highlighting where there have been changes in the recommendations and what the expectations are and sourcing training in that, in that regard. We have of course a very good result in terms of Bermuda's mutual evaluation where they did extremely well, um, our best result to date. And of course there are lessons to be learned from that for other jurisdictions in the region as to what has to be done. I would say that key to that again is their national risk assessment before their assessment? Their on site assess evaluation they were able to have done three national risk assessments two for money laundering, one for terrorist financing. So that certainly helped in terms of knowing where to target your limited resources, where your highest risk are, and how best to address them. So it's an ongoing um, and daily challenge. Um, it's what we do continuously, reinforcing. We respond as quickly as possible to members' needs, their requirements, their request for information, their request for training, and that is how we um, foster increasing and, you know, making better their AML-CFT systems. That being said, of course, there's still the issue of the gray listing. And while we have had countries that have been listed, I'm pleased to say we've had countries, Trinidad and Tobago, the Bahamas, who've come off that listing within the reasonable time frame that they should have come off the, the listing. Um, there were some delays with the Bahamas due to the COVID-19. But again, countries are working diligently. They're doing what they have to do, and they're ensuring that there's ongoing implementation. So what I could see of our region and of our members, uh, they're aware of what the requirements are and within their means, given their limitations in terms of economic um, grandeur, their small jurisdictions, small economies, they're doing the best that they can and we are guiding them and ushering them towards that to keep you know, moving forward and improving.
0: Fantastic. So, Don, a slightly you know different subject. You know, you're a commissioner with the Liechtenstein Initiative. Can you tell us a bit more about your role there? And also, you know, what are your observations on the banking and financial sector's perception of human trafficking and modern slavery as an AML/CFT risk?
1: Okay, thank you for that question. So, just a minor correction. I was a commissioner. The um, role of the commissioners ended in um, 2019 when the blueprint was presented at United Nations in September of 2019. So essentially for one year, I had the pleasure of working with um, basically a think tank of very um, focused people on this area, various aspects of it from the legal, financial, actually to survivors. So there were 25 commissioners uh, made up and um, chaired by Ms. Fiona Reynolds. So it was a very um, eye-opening experience, realizing that the scale of the problem is much larger than one would think. And that in terms of a predicate offense to money laundering, it's something that more attention needs to be paid on. So with regard to that experience, it was the development of the um, blueprint by the commissioners the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking or FAST blueprint. And the aim was of course to engage financial institutions because of the role they play in funding various um, sectors to be aware of further down the chain what the impact might be where or if they see elements of modern slavery and human trafficking. And so they Um, the FAST blueprint ended up with five goals, um, 30 actions, which um, finance companies um, are able to implement at their will. So that is how that went in terms of the region. Now they had, there are lots of um, what I say, human trafficking or anti-human trafficking units within law enforcement within the region, a lot in the embryonic stages, but they are active. They are aware of the problem. Again, COVID-19 has caused um, greater focus on this because of the migration of persons to where they perceive there's better economic advantage, etc. And so you would see more headlines, more focus, more public awareness, or heightened public awareness of the human trafficking plight in and um, of forced labor, etc., and its impact on what has happened. So there is an awareness of it. I think it still needs more sensitization and ongoing public awareness. So it's not something where you have upwards of 150 billion in assets, US in assets globally being made off of modern slavery and human trafficking. So it's not something that we can take our feet over. It's something that when we do prepare for an onsite and we do the aspect of call the scoping you note know, to see what the risks are we look for elements of human trafficking to see whether it's a country that's susceptible to it, either because of its geographical location, the types of industries involved, if there's lots of construction, if there's any mining. We don't have any mining per se in the region, um, probably but for one country or so, but we look at those elements to see if there's an element of human trafficking that law enforcement is aware of or that the finance, Um, sector, financial sector is aware of, but I think there's a lot more awareness than let's say four or five years ago, but more needs to be done. And it's something that we need to keep um, hammering home and focusing on um, to get, ensure that the um, financial sector really takes a part and is really aware of what is going on and um, have their part to play. And that being said, we recognized in terms of the blueprint and the fast that while there's a focus on the finance sector because of the impact of funding of um factories and different commercial activities but there's a really a role for everyone to play in terms of where they see this to play their part and to report it or take some sort of action against it right
0: um so um do finally you know uh, maybe speaking at a global level as someone involved closely with the FATF, you know, globally as well as regionally, uh, what would you say are some of the areas of cooperation that might result in more consistency in ML frameworks applied across the globe?
1: Um, I think it's an ongoing process, an ongoing collaboration. The FETF has a global network consisting of all nine FSRBs plus, of course, the FETF themselves they have plenary meetings, so there's an opportunity for all to sit and discuss, review mutual evaluation reports, um, ensure there's a high level of quality and consistency, and try to ensure that um, measures are put in place as equitably as possible. Again, we're talking about risk-based approach, but I think one of the challenges is how a risk-based approach is being implemented, how effective it is, what the understanding of a risk-based approach is. So it's easy to say risk-based approach, but are we really, in terms of the various sectors, especially between the public and private sectors, actually implementing a risk-based? So is there always an element of rule-based? So we have some jurisdictions where even though you may have a risk-based approach for PEPs, they still say a PEP is a PEP is a PEP from cradle to grave. So where do you draw the line and what is the understanding? And again, that requires collaboration, both at a global level in terms of the meetings that we have, the um, conversations such as this, um, you know, other sorts of conferences, et cetera, but also continuous discussion, continuous implementation of the FATF standards and of course, changes to those standards. And of course, those very ongoing changes because of risk is also something that causes small jurisdictions a bit of angst because it means they constantly have to be changing legislation to meet the new risks that are derived or the new approaches based on the changes to the FATF standards themselves. But again, from the global level, I think We're in the right direction in terms of trying to improve our international cooperation in trying to ensure that the smaller jurisdictions in the global network are aware of their commitments and uh, have the ability to, through funding, through training, et cetera, to undertake their commitment. You know, they say you as strong as your weakest link. So it's important, of course, in a global network of 205 countries, which is approximately the amount of countries covered by the FATF-FSRB system, that there is a focus on those countries that may not be as strong, that may require more um, guidance and focus, et cetera. And I, I guess, collectively, that's what we tried to do through the FSRBs, and that was the FATF monitors in terms of um, its overall look at the global framework for AML, CFT, and CPF.
0: Well, fantastic speaking with you today. And thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts and all the efforts you took in doing this interview.
1: Thank you for having me, Sharish. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Don.